Welcome to the Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. I load freight with a forklift. I have been a bus driver and a substitute teacher, and I am a history graduate student. I am an ordained pastor, and I hope to become a history professor. In this podcast, we will explore history, theology, pop culture, current events, and perhaps a few other topics along the way. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The opening and closing music is Lo-Fi Summer Background by Vladislav Kurnikov from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. However, if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you liked and subscribed to Blue Collar Scholar in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast distributor. Writing a review, leaving a five-star rating, and sharing links in your social media platform is also much appreciated. Thank you for joining us. Hello, friends and family. I just want to drop in here real quick to give you guys a heads up. It is now November 1st, so we are unofficially in the holiday stretch. I know for a lot of you that's going to sound almost sacrilegious. Christmas doesn't start until after Thanksgiving. But if you're taking college classes, we are definitely in the holiday stretch now. So I want to say this, that I might not be caught up on the podcast. I might get a little behind because other things are going to have to take precedent as I make sure that I get done uh, not only with the historiography class I'm taking at Pitt State for the online master's program, but I also need to make sure that I'm staying caught up with my notes for teaching this New Testament class uh, for Neosho County. Uh, and so if the, the podcast has to take a back seat, it's going to have to take a back seat. But So today we are at least one podcast behind. I probably won't have enough time today to get caught up, but hopefully over the next couple weeks I'll stay more or less caught up. And if I have to, the last few episodes of the New Testament lecture series will come around Christmas time. But by New Year's I will definitely be caught up. Anyway, I'm glad to have you guys with the podcast. If you'll do me a favor, if you've been enjoying the podcast, will you go to Facebook or Twitter or whichever social media you use, and would you drop a link in your uh, feed? Just let your friends and family know that this is happening, especially if they know me and have ever heard me before. Uh, I have no real way of advertising this podcast, and so in order to get the, the word out, I could really use your guys' help especially over the next three or four years as I try to transition into teaching history, uh, perhaps at a community college level, I'm going to have to develop something of a reputation because the world of teaching history at the college level, even the community college level, is a bit of a saturated field. So I'm going to need every little bit of advantage I can get. And anything, any help I can get from you guys to help uh, bolster my reputation and my visibility is appreciated. So if you would just do me a favor and uh, copy a link to this, put this on your Facebook or your Twitter uh, feed or whatever other uh, social media you use because I'm super old and I'm not up to date on all of the social media trends. If you could just leave a link, I want you to know that would be very highly appreciated. Oh, and one more thing. I forgot to mention this earlier. 
Since uh, I'm coming down to crunch time on both of my classes, you might notice that the podcasts are going to be a little less edited than usual. A few more ums and ahs slip in. Uh, I usually try to tighten up the podcast as much as possible, but for the next couple weeks, it's probably going to be just a little bit rougher than it usually is. But I still hope that you find the content to be uh, valuable. Today's podcast is going to be the biography of Jesus Christ. So I really hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast as we dig into this lecture. The central figure of all of the texts we studied is Christ. So tonight we're going to uh, break away from uh, strict questions about the text and where the text comes from. And we still, by the way, we still got some lectures about where the texts come from. We'll talk about transmission of the text and we're going to spend the night talking about English translations and one whole night talking about the King James translation itself and so we still got some more work on the text but I wanted to take a, ch a chance to set aside three lectures just to talk about the important people so tonight we're going to talk about Jesus and then on Thursday we're going to talk about the apostles except for Paul because then on Tuesday we'll do Paul we'll, we'll set aside a night just for him alright so let's dig right in who is Jesus of Nazareth well, Jesus was born sometime around four, well, between 6 and 4 B.C. And he probably was not born on December 25th. So why do we think that? Well, in three, the year 350, Pope Julius declared that Christmas, the Christmas celebration, the Christmas feast, which celebrates the birth of Christ, would be on December 25th. So why was that? Well, perhaps the, the best theory... Not completely proven, by the way, but perhaps the best theory is that the Pope saw an opportunity to co-opt two important Roman pagan festivals. See, because if you think 350, you're not too much after the time of Constantine and Rome's shift from a primarily pagan society to a primarily Christian society. So you've still got people who, if they're old enough, they themselves grew up celebrating the festivals known as Saturnalia and Sol Invictus. Those two celebrations, Saturnalia is a kind of a late or an early winter, late fall harvest festival that takes place over a couple of weeks ending on December, I want to say 23rd, it might be December 21st, but right around that area. And then Sol Invictus is the celebration of the day once the astronomers can actually start to measure that the days are getting longer. Because Sol Invictus means unconquered sun. The sun meaning the, the ball of gas burning in, in space, not Jesus the sun. And so once you, you realize that the days are getting longer, then you can declare that the sun has been unconquered by the winter, and that, so that would be part of, part of the, the festival calendar. So it's possible that Julius wanted to kind of co-opt those festivals for Christianity. And what better way to do than to stick Christianity Christmas right in there and just say, oh, all that's now Christmas stuff. So all the gift giving and everything. And then uh, a few centuries later, as German and Nordic festivals like Yuletide, they, they can get folded in and then we bring in stuff like wreaths and Christmas trees and, and all that stuff kind of gets folded in and eventually you get to the Christmas celebration that we know today for the most part. I think that's all probably true. I think it is probably true that the Catholics... Uh, or at this point you probably just, just say the Christians wanted to kind of co-opt or reuse 
Saturnalia and Sol Invictus. But there's another thing that, that sometimes people point out, but I don't hear pointed out a lot, and that is that Christmas is roughly nine months after the start of spring. And so, according to Christian traditions, three important things line up. First of all, for whatever reason, there was a strong belief in the early, early medieval church, or I guess this would be the late ancient period, around the end of the Roman Empire. Uh, there was a belief that creation, Genesis chapter 1, began on the first day of spring, which I guess I can kind of see where they're going with this. You know, the new life and flowers budding kind of reminds you of new creation. But just to be clear, there's nothing in Genesis that says that, that God the Father decided to begin creation in March. First of all, what does March mean? Sans creation. I mean, so that was part of the tradition. And then also, around the end of March, maybe early April, would be about the time of Jesus' Passion Week. So the events of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection would be more or less in that time frame. And so they, I believe, Pope Julius also wanted to kind of see that, that what if what if Jesus' conception also happened at that same time? So could you nine months before or nine months after that would be Christmas. So three things line up. So the the birth of the universe, the I guess rebirth at, at resurrection and Jesus' conception, which would be a form of birth, all kind of kind of beginning at one time. And so it was thought that that March 25th could be about the time when Jesus was conceived, so December 25th would naturally be when he was born. But this is kind of a, a chicken or egg kind of thing, because I think the more I look into it, I think the belief in December 25th as Christmas predates all this idea about March 25th being his conception. I think somebody eventually started looking at the at Christmas on December 25th and saying, oh, look at all this stuff that lines up nine months before. Because if you really wanted to combine the rebirth of the resurrection and the birth of the universe with Christ's birth, you would connect it with his birth, not his conception. So, kind of a chicken or egg kind of thing. So, I think we can rule out December 25th and the venerable Bede, English, early, early English scholar, if I remember right, I think he was the one that pegged Jesus' birth at zero AD, which is why that's where the calendar starts, is from the beginning of Christ's life. For several reasons, that was, if it was Bede that did it, he made a mistake because, and we'll get to this in a second in my notes, but we now know, for instance, that King Herod probably died in 4 BC. So if King Herod was around when Jesus was born, if there's a slight overlap in their lives, then Jesus would have had to have already been around before then. So what's the most likely for Jesus' birth? Well, the most likely is that sometime between 6 and 4 B.C. is when Jesus was born, based on that time frame of Herod dying in 4 B.C. Just to be clear, there are some people who say that the date of Herod's death is not yet a settled thing. So, I know Michael Heiser, who you and I, we've talked about before, the Unseen Realm author, he is a big fan of pushing... Uh, Herod's death up to the year 1 B.C. Because he really likes this theory of, and I don't know his theory well enough to 
to cover it well, but if I understand him correctly, he wants to push the birth of Jesus to the year 2 and the weekend of September 11th, coincidentally, that has nothing to do with the events of September 11th, 2001, uh, because of some astronomical phenomenons that he believed happened at that time. Uh, The last time I read his article, I barely understood it and I didn't find it convincing. So I still think that 4 or 5 B.C. is the best bet for Jesus' birth. And likely he was born sometime in the spring or early summer, maybe the late summer, uh, based on supposed grazing patterns. Now, to be clear, shepherds didn't leave us treatises on their grazing patterns. So we're not entirely sure how shepherds did their work. There wasn't any service manuals from the first century, but based on what we suppose, shepherds wouldn't necessarily want to be grazing out in the rainy season, for instance. And although Israel doesn't get too cold, there are certain times a year where it would get a little colder, and December is probably one of those times. And so chances are the grazing outside at night would probably be something that would be done maybe in the spring. You start getting into the deep summer, then you're going to start running into the other problem of it being too hot, even at night. And so I'm thinking springtime is probably springtime, probably around the year four or five BC is going to be your best bet for when Jesus was born. Luckily, none of that really matters theologically for uh, the story of Christ. Where was he born? Well, I think we all know he was born in Bethlehem, and we can all probably think of two or three Christmas songs that mention it right in our head right now. So I mentioned this before when we talked about Matthew and Luke, is that both of them cover the Christmas story. Both of them cover it in a way that the, the details don't really line up very well. Now, they can synthesize, but it synthesizes like, like fixing a Lego and a Lincoln log together. So it can be done, but the whole time you've got to be realizing is like, eh, this might be a stretch. This makes perfect sense, but oh, I'm not sure about that detail. And so let me take, an, let me take a swipe at it. If you look at both Matthew and Luke, this seems to be the best story of Christmas. Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth. Now, in Matthew, I might be getting my my stories backwards, so I'll just put it this way. In one of them, it seems like Mary and Joseph had always been from Bethlehem, and then they go to Nazareth. And then in the other one, they make a big deal about them being in Nazareth and then having to make the trek to Bethlehem. But like I said, if you synthesize both stories, it seems like they were both from Nazareth, and that they did, in fact, to go to Bethlehem in order to make sure that Jesus would be registered in David's city. Now, the book of Matthew says that it kind of it kind of hints that everybody had to do that. You all all had to go back to your ancestral homeland. That is almost certainly not true. Can you imagine what a quagmire that would be? That everybody would have to go back. 20 or 30 generations to go wherever your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather happened to be from? That would be like if the nation of Germany decided to hold a census and I had to go back wherever the heck my German family are from, Bohemia or who knows. Um, Actually, Bohemia is not Germany, is it? That's Czech Republic. Um, What am I thinking of? The southern part of Germany. Bavaria, there you go. Uh, Bavaria, Prussia, who knows? Whatever part of Germany my people are from which shows you how, how well I know my ancestry. In fact, for a long time, members of my family thought we were Dutch. We were from the Netherlands. Do you know why? 
because of the term Pennsylvania Dutch. Well, that's that was just Americans mispronouncing Pennsylvania Deutsch, because <laughs> Deutsch is the German word for German. Yeah, if you say Germany in German, it's Deutschland. So, uh, when you say Pennsylvania Dutch, you're actually referring to Germans, not to actual Dutch people. Hmm. So, yeah, we our, our stock come from Germany for the most part. My mom's side of the family were all from Ireland somewhere. Who knows? Um, I'd like to imagine we're from Northern Ireland because, as far as I know, all of my Irish people are Protestants. So, but I don't know that for sure. Um, one of these days, I really ought to do the ancestry.com thing and really go back as deep as deep as I possibly can. Anyway. All that to say this, it would have been highly unlikely for Roman people to tell, for the Romans to tell all the Jewish people that you have to scatter and go back to your ancestral homeland dozens of generations back. It's more likely Joseph would have had motivations to do that. And I, my, I theorize, just take this with a grain of salt, I theorize that a lot of that has to do with questions over Jesus' legitimate birth. Because... Everybody in Nazareth is going to know the the story. They're going to know that Joseph and Mary aren't married yet. So either Mary's been cheating on Joseph or Mary and Joseph have been cheating on their, you know, they've been getting a head start on their marital uh, benefits before they got married, one or the other. And so either way, it's going to be an issue of of rumor mills and, and reputations. And that's not a really a good way for a, for you to have your son get a good start in this world, especially in the ancient world. So I think he had every reason to take an opportunity to say, hey, my family's from Bethlehem. Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's get out of Dodge. And so I think that's the motivation to, for them to go to Bethlehem. And once there, they, they seem to have stayed there for one to two years. I'll get back to that in a second. So when they get to Bethlehem, it appears that they could not find a place to stay. So they stayed in a stable. It is possible that the word in Greek, not an expert on this, but I've heard this taught, that a more likely definition than stable, because we're thinking like a barn, like a separate building. And if that's the case, then they almost certainly were born in a cave. There's just not enough wood to build or enough stucco or whatever. I, actually, what, I don't know what you would make houses up from in ancient Israel, to be honest with you, but... There's not enough stone or wood or building material to just be building barns everywhere. So if they have a stable, it's going to be like a cave that you clean up and put a a gate in front of so you can store animals. More likely, there's a room attached to the house that's dirtier than the other rooms, and that's where you keep your animals, especially at night when they're not out wandering around, grazing and whatnot. And it's possible that that's the kind of place where Jesus was born, in kind of the extra room. While they were there, they were met by shepherds. Because the shepherds, according to the book of Luke, were contacted in the night by angels, and they said, uh, Go to Bethlehem, for there is born unto this day in the city of David, one who is be, to be the Messiah. And it's one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. And, and uh, every time I read it, I imagine it being spoken by Linus in, in the uh, Peanuts Christmas. Which, by the way, Interesting side note, in every Peanuts cartoon that I'm aware of, Linus always has his blanket, his security blanket, except when he starts quoting Luke and he drops it. And then once he finishes quoting that story about the birth of Christ, he reaches down and picks his blanket up and walks off the stage. 
So I've always wanted to know if that was an intentional choice by the animators. It certainly yeah. feels like it. I don't think yeah. you could accidentally animate something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It seems that's what I'm saying. It oh, seems it seems like an intentional choice. So the shepherds come to visit. I'm guessing in the middle of the night, maybe early in the morning. This does two things. For one thing, a lot of the the mythos. I say mythos. I'm not saying it's fake. I'm saying the mythos is the kind of the the narrative meaning behind the story. The the mythos of the birth of Christ in Bethlehem and the city of David. Throwing shepherds into the mix makes total sense because that's what David's profession was before he came, went into ancient politics. Uh, well, I guess shepherd then warrior and soldier then king, and so having the shepherds there would be a connection to the royal line of David. But ironically, also at the same time, it would connect Jesus with the lowest castes of society as well, because shepherds were not well thought of. They were seen as poor and kind of white trash. Obviously, not really white, but that kind of that kind of social stigma would be about them. These you know kind of dirty working men types, and so having the shepherds there as his entourage would would connect you not only to the royal line but also to the lower class classes as well. Jesus, as a, a good Jewish boy, was dedicated and circumcised at the temple on the eighth day while he was there. Uh, and by the way, Bethlehem. Nazareth or Bethlehem and Jerusalem are not very far away, so that's another advantage of Joseph taking his family to Bethlehem. Is you're now within walking distance of Jerusalem, or at least if you have a, a good pack animal, walking distance. Otherwise, maybe about a two day journey of walking, but you're you're pretty close to Jerusalem. So on the eighth day, Jesus goes to the temple and he's dedicated and he's circumcised, and there he's prophesied over by a female prophetess Anna and by a male prophet Simeon. So that, that was Luke, the story of the eighth, uh, circumcision on the eighth day and the dedication ceremony. I'm not actually sure if Luke mentions that a circumcision happened, but that's what, that, was, that was the ceremony. That's, what, that's why they were at the temple. Then we go back to Matthew, and we start to see the Matthew's entourage account. So in, in Matthew, it's not the shepherds that are the entourage, it's the Magi of the East. And so who are the Magi? Well... The term Magi is a term used for Persia. So if you've got a map in your mind of, of Iraq and Iran, Persia is Iran. I mean, this is well before Sunni and Shia Islam, so that's not in the picture. Persia, at one point, about 300 years before this, was the most powerful nation on earth. Persia, with King Cyrus, was the one that crushed Babylon and freed the Jews to be able to go back to their home. But at that point, the Jews are, are strong all over the place, and a bunch of Jews just stay put in Persia. And so there, we see this in the book of Esther. Esther talks about some of the, uh, I guess, adventures would be the word, of the Jewish people that stayed in Persia and did not go back to the Holy Land. And so you have these magi who are from Persia, who hold some kind of academic, maybe a religious position. They they seem to be astronomers and probably astrologers as well. Uh, I don't think very much of astrology. I know my sign's Leo, but that's only because I can't avoid it. I, I find astrology to be ridiculous, but I admit I'm saying that as a 21st century American, modern, postmodern person. To an ancient person, astrology, heck, even probably to the Jews, certain aspects of astrology would have been part of their natural worldview. 
In fact, that's part of Dr. Michael Heiser's argument for trying to place Jesus' birth in early September of the year, I want to say two, is because of the interesting astrological or astronomical events that, that may have been happening at that time. And that would have been significant for the Jews as well as the other nations around them. Oh, you guys are still looking up. (laughs) I shouldn't have brought it up. She was concerned, and I didn't want her to be anxious. (laughs) One of my my favorite memes to share on... on, um, Actually, I got two of them. Uh, Every time people start... Some of my friends start talking about astrology, I will share a meme that says, uh, here's your zodiac sign, and every one of them is, the sun and moon have no effect on your life. (laughs) The sun and moon. And then the other one is is a, a... like like a cute girl, it's just a drawing. Like a cute girl and a kind of a rugged twenty-something guy, and they're sit, standing at a bus stop having a conversation. And she says, uh, "What's your sign?" And he says, "Cassiopeia." <laughs> and she says, "That's not a real one." And he says, "None of them are real." <laughs> and that's the it. And I, I I have those stored on my phone to share at a moment's notice. <laughs> I don't think much of astrology, but the Zoroastrians did, and that's what the Magi were. They were. The, the Magi were a priest class of Zoroastrianism. I don't claim to be a expert on Zoroastrianism, but what I do know about it is it was a fairly monotheistic religion, at least compared to your typical pagan fair of the Middle East where you would have divine councils of dozens of gods or far cry from like Greece where there would be hundreds of Olympian gods and petty gods, and then even in Hinduism, there are 330 million deities. It's ridiculous. Well, from a Christian standpoint, it's ridiculous. I don't want to insult Hinduism. There's a lot of Hindus and a lot of really smart ones, too. But from a Christian standpoint, as monotheists, and and Jews are especially monotheists, there could possibly be a, a connection between the Magi as Zoroastrian priests. It would be kind of a stretch, but, but a, a bit of a connection for them to see significance in the birth of a Messiah figure. So for whatever reason, these Magi, they see the signs in the heavens, they recognize a star that they believe has special significance, and from their vantage point it's pointing towards the Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Israel area from Persia, and so they they take off. And the Magi head directly towards them, but if you look at, at a map of the Middle East, the, the Fertile Crescent goes like this. People aren't really going to cut across modern-day Iraq. You're going to follow the rivers up north and then and back south through northern and into southern Israel because your camels or, or horses or whatever you have, pack animals, are going to be able to drink and eat on a fertile land that you're not going to be able to do in the middle of the desert. So if you're coming from Persia, if you cut straight across, you're going to miss Jerusalem. But if you're taking the Fertile Crescent, you're going to go right through Jerusalem on your way to Bethlehem. And so in Jerusalem, the Magi, which by the way, the book of Matthew does not say there are three. Uh, all we know is that Magi is plural, so there's between two and however many. So, and they probably went with a company. Oh, almost certainly. And so I think the hint that there are three gifts makes three the most likely number. But like you said, certainly they had entourages with them. They had probably, I don't know, a dozen, two dozen, three dozen, some people with them to help carry their stuff and to serve them. Honestly, probably as slaves and protectors, soldiers of that type. 
And so Herod goes to his scholars. His scholars say, well, there's this passage in Micah about Bethlehem being the place where the king, the coming king will come from. Maybe that's where, where they're going to go. That's, maybe that's where they should go. So Herod sends them along and says, hey, when you, when you find out where this king is, will you tell me about him so I'll uh, you know, come worship him? And uh, Herod, of course, as you can see by his later activities, that's not his goal. So he sends the Magi on. The Magi come to the house. They give their gifts to to the to Jesus, who at this point's like a toddler. He's not a newborn, but he's not a child. He probably remember Jesus is a human being. We tend to think of as Christians, we tend to think of him as God the Son. So certainly he can remember all this. Probably not. As an adult, he probably doesn't remember all this, these events. Mary is the one that it says she remembered all this and stored it in her heart. And then the, an angel warns the Magi to re, return home by a different route. And to me, that sounds like cutting across the desert, what you tried to avoid doing earlier because you're sane. And so they decide to take the harder route, cut across the desert to get home. And Herod gets completely angry, and he decides to eliminate all the male babies within that age range, so everything two and under. Herod decides to kill all the male babies uh, of Bethlehem that are in that age range. Because if he killed all the babies in Jerusalem, that would be hundreds and hundreds of babies. It would have been a massacre of epic historical proportions. Bethlehem's a small village. Mm-hmm. We're probably talking about a dozen or less, which is still an incredible war... I mean, I don't know if it's a war crime, but it's a crime. It's a crime against humanity. Oh, it's it's a... It's terrible. It's it's the Bible does not portray Herod in a good light. And even if all you needed was that event, you would still he would be a, a moral monster and a villain of the story. And so, the angel, like they warned the Magi to go one direction, they warn Mary and Joseph to get out of town as well. So Mary and Joseph take Jesus and they go to northern Egypt, probably to the city of Alexandria, which is a port city on the Mediterranean near the delta of the Nile. So. There's a large Jewish population in Alexandria. It's a Greek city in Egypt with a large Jewish population, so it's multicultural. It'd be a good place to hang out, to, to, to spend some time. Joseph probably would have a good career there as a carpenter. There would be reasons why Alexandria would be a good place to, to go if you're trying to evade Herod and his, his government. What does Jesus do in Egypt? We have no idea. But there's lots of speculation from extra-biblical sources. We mentioned the infancy gospel of Thomas, that when he was a, a, a terrible toddler, that he would go around with the power of God and strike people and make them uh, hurt and lame and even, in a few cases, dead. And then later he got remorse and then decided to use his God powers to make everybody well again. Thank you, Gnostics, for that interesting story. And so that was, first of all, if my timeline's right, Jesus would is still maybe like an older toddler, maybe four, in the four range when they leave Egypt. So once again, Jesus probably has very few memories of Egypt. Uh, so this is probably a more formative, formative time in Mary and Joseph's life than it would be in Jesus' life. So when Herod dies, honestly, probably not even four or five, because if Herod dies in the year four, Jesus probably... Two and a half, three, maybe four. When when Herod's gone, probably sooner, probably early, younger than that. Once Herod's gone, the angel tells them that they could go back home, and then it seems like 
the text says that when they found out Archelaus, Herod's son, was in charge, then they decided to go to switch routes. And that's why they went to Nazareth. So it seems like their initial plan was to return to Bethlehem and set up home there. And once they realized that another one of the Herodians would be in charge, they decide to go up to the north, which is an interesting term because other Herodians were in charge there. As we'll see during Jesus' trials, one of his trials is to Herod, another one of the sons of Herod the Great. The only other story we have of Jesus as a child comes when he is around 12. And his family go to Jerusalem, I assume, for a Passover feast. Jesus will go to Jerusalem for Passover feasts as an adult as well. And on their way back, they they must have went in a a large group because Mary and Joseph don't realize that Jesus isn't with their party until they've already gone a day's journey. Then they return and find him. He's in the temple, still speaking with the scholars there, learning, and I don't know if the implication is that he's also teaching them, but that would be interesting. But he's, he's certainly he's impressing them with their questions and maybe with some of his wisdom, and, and it's, a, it's an interesting exchange. And, you know, it says that uh, they search for him for three days. I've forgotten that detail, yeah. They, they search for him for a while. I think that would have been just terrifying, wouldn't it? And then, and was, and then, and then you got this twelve-year-old spending all this time with religious scholars for three days, four days, because they went a day's journey before they left. And then he gives the answer: Why did you search for me when you know I'd be in my father's house? So at the age of twelve, Jesus is starting to understand who he really is. But it's after that verse, the "Wouldn't you know I'm in my father's house." It's after that verse that Luke says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in the sight of men. And so, at 12, Jesus is beginning to understand who he really is, but he does not clearly have complete knowledge yet. Now, this is where we want to ask, from a Christian perspective, when then does Jesus know that he is God the Son, a member of the Trinity, part of the Godhead, creator of the universe, Unfortunately, that's one of those questions we're just going to have to wait to ask him someday. Because the none of the four Gospels really tell us that. In fact, only John really hits home. The other Gospels definitely do tell us that, the, that Jesus is God. But John's the only one that hits it home strong. And so John would be the one that would give us those kind of details if, if, they, if he wanted to. But John doesn't even give us anything about Jesus' childhood. It's only Matthew and Luke. John begins with a poem about Jesus as the epic creator of the universe, but once Jesus actually appears in the story, he's already an adult, just like Mark. In both Mark and John, in half the Gospels, no discussion of his, of his youth or his young adulthood whatsoever. However, during this time from 12 to 30-ish, we can make some reasonable speculations. So let's reasonably speculate. We can assume that he was trained to be a carpenter because his legal father, Joseph, was a carpenter. And it was common to the point of almost expected that you're going to, whatever your father does, that's what you're going to do. You'll train under him and then you eventually you'll take over the family business. We do know that he had several younger siblings, although our Catholic brothers and sisters will disagree because the Catholics really want to push hard the idea that Mary was perpetually a virgin. 
the, uh, the motivation for that is a distorted view of sex, that sex is somehow inherently sinful and wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches about sex. The Bible teaches that sex is a good thing, and it's honorable in the sight of God when it's done right between a husband and a wife. And so Mary and Joseph, as a married couple, absolutely had sexual relations with each other and seemed to produce at least six children. Because you have James, Simeon, Jude, Joseph, and then quote-unquote sisters, plural, so at least two girls. So we're talking about at least six children. And Mary had another one, Jesus. And so they almost certainly had a full, rich, married life. And so Jesus had younger siblings. Now imagine being Jesus' younger sibling. Because you're going to get in trouble. And Mary, you know Mary's going to do that. Why can't you behave more like Jesus? That had to have been tough. Which might explain a little bit why James and, and Jude were a little late to the party of, of joining the church. They, don't, they were not disciples. They become apostles, at least James is. Whether Jude has the title apostle, I think he does. But uh, I, nowhere in the literature is he d- uh, addressed as an apostle. So you don't think Jesus was an ordinary child? I, I don't mean ordinary, but behaved like an ordinary child until he was 12. I believe that we, as I'm speaking as a, from a Christian perspective, that we have to take seriously the idea that Jesus was sinless. And also, we need to take seriously the idea that he was human. And so, would Jesus have anxieties? Probably, almost certainly, because I don't think anxiety is sinful. Uh, Would Jesus have insecurities? Probably. Would Jesus have struggles of sinfulness? Sure. Might Jesus have, have been rude at times? We see that in the New Testament. Sometimes he's a bit blunt and rude. But no out-and-out sinfulness, no direct violations of God's law, no victimization of other people. And if those things are true, you're a pretty good kid. I mean, even if you do push a few envelopes, and I'm sure Jesus pushed a few envelopes, but no, do I think he he out-and-out was sinful? No, I don't think so. No, I didn't mean sinful, but I just play like normal Oh, surely. Absolutely. Well, yeah, because... Once again, this is one of those things where secular thinkers and Christian thinkers have, in many ways, we're thinking about two entirely different people. Christians tend to think of Jesus and our knee-jerk reaction is God. In fact, I'll do that sometimes when I'm in preaching about Jesus. I'll accidentally call him God sometimes when I'm actually mean Jesus. So that's, that's the Christian knee-jerk reaction is, well, we're talking about God here. Oh yeah, he was also human. And the secular impulse is to do the opposite. Is We're just talking about a dude here. This is just a guy. Oh yeah, Christians also think he's God. But he's a guy. He's a human being. So the natural inclination between Christians and seculars, secular scholars and Christian scholars, is, is our opposite knee-jerk reactions. And so I always try to remind myself of that, that when I think of Christ, especially as a young man, because I do take seriously the verse in, in Luke. In fact, I, I, re- I noticed today, it, twice in the same chapter, it says that he grew. And then the one that ends chapter 2 says he grew in wisdom. So if you're growing in wisdom, 
then there's some real humanity there that, that there had, had to have been something in his wisdom that was lacking an experience God the Father has, has no experience of and for that matter I don't believe God the Holy Spirit has any experience of the idea of growing in wisdom that is a unique feature of God the Son because Jesus is human and Christians just we chafe at that idea that Jesus was a guy did I answer your questions? Well, yes. I guess when when you said imagine his siblings, yeah. <laughs> because I guess I envisioned Jesus growing up in a family with with brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. and that if he if he came to Earth as a man, as a human being, that he's going to be a kid. Oh yeah. And I don't mean sinful, but I don't think most things that little kids do on their own are really sinful. It's only if they've been taught or <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, but you don't have to teach a kid the word mine. Excuse me. You don't have to teach a kid the word mine. Oh, no. Or no. So there's two sin two sins that come naturally. Kids don't have to be taught how to uh, be oppositional, the word no. Or to be selfish. But you don't think Jesus ever said no to his mother? Ooh, that's a that's a good question. <laughs> I I gotta think. Yes, <laughs> well, he did say no to her, her at the wedding in Canaan. But only once. Yeah, he said no. He says my time's not yet come, and she just didn't listen. She's you like know, she's like nope, you're gonna do it because I'm you, your mom. You know what my opinion of that? The wedding must have been of one of Mary's kids. And that's why mm. she was so insistent about the wine. I had never thought about it that way. Because yeah, right. she would have lots of kids, yeah. She was the host. And that would explain why he's there. Yeah. So let's get back to our reasonable speculation. So if Jesus grows in wisdom and stature, Luke two fifty two, that means that his omniscience, that he knows everything, was somehow veiled by the Father or the Spirit, and. Like I said earlier, or I hinted at earlier, how that happened or exactly how that works is pure speculation. We just don't know. We could, we can assume, reasonably assume that he would have been educated in Judaism, that he would have had a, a bar mitzvah. I don't know if that term really would have been used at the time. That might be more of a medieval Jewish term. I don't know. I'm, I'm not an expert in post-biblical Jewish history. But he would have had those kind of events. He would have been trained in Judaism. Unfortunately, I think we can also probably assume that he would have been the butt of some rumors and maybe some jokes because everybody in Nazareth would have known that Mary was pregnant before they, before her and Joseph were married. And so he probably would have had to suffer with a little bit of that. Uh, he, we, we, can, we know that he grew up in the multicultural valley of Galilee, now, when I say valley, I'm referring to the whole countryside because you got kind of the upper hills, what we now call the Golan Heights and that old area, and, and everything from there to the, I guess a valley would imply another side too. So I guess I'll say the lowlands, the lowlands of Galilee from the, from the highlands going all the way down to the Mediterranean. He grew up in that area, fertile area, but it was also very multicultural. You had Jewish cities, you had Samaritan cities, and you had Greek cities. And then you had some places where it was a mix of all of it. So he would have been used to Romans and Greeks and Samaritans, and he also would have known what it was like to be under the oppression of the Romans. Now, we need to be clear here. 
the Romans were not like the Assyrians, where you go in and slaughter all the men and do random tortures like cutting off fingers and toes just to sh- just because you can. That really wasn't the Roman style. But the Romans also didn't pity no fools. So if you didn't obey every rule, if you didn't pay every tax, if you offered any kind of resistance, they would crush it. That was what it's like living under an empire. And Jesus would have experienced that, if not by his own experience, but by people he knew and probably people he loved. Jesus' ministry then begins in his 30s. Now, the texts of the New Testament say about 30. But like I said, once we understand the time frame of Jesus' life, the scholar Andreas Kostenberg, or Kostenberger, or anybody read that book? I know you read the book. Uh, our text for the class. He wrote an article, and by his admission, I asked him about this at, at Midwestern, uh, at the seminary where he works. He didn't originate the idea. He got it from some other scholar. But I was exposed to the idea in an, uh, an article he wrote that we can time Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, to the weekend of April 3rd, 33 A.D. And if it's not that, because you, you can time it by uh, the, the date of the Passover and certain other events that happen in 33 A.D. lines up pretty well. And then the next best candidate is 30 A.D. But there's lots of reasons to prefer the year 33. And so if Jesus was born in 4 or 5 B.C., then he's in his upper 30s when he dies. A three-year ministry in John, that means he's in his mid-30s when he begins, begins his ministry. It's best to understand the idea of about 30 to be an idiom in the same way we would use the idiom in his 30s. So I'm 41 now. In eight years, I'll be 49. And in both cases, you could use the phrase, oh, Will's in his 40s. It still works. English is weird. And so is Hebrew. So Aramaic or Greek, whichever language you want to point out for this ancient context. And so Jesus would have been in his 30s He would have been, let's put it this way, he's at least 30 when he begins his ministry. Numbers chapter 4 describes the age of 30 as the age in which public ministry can begin. Now, to be fair, in Numbers chapter 4, they're talking about priests. And Jesus' ministry wasn't really a priesthood. It was more like a preacher or evangelist. Nevertheless, Numbers chapter 4 describes 30 as the age that public ministry can begin. The idea is that if you're younger than that, you're too dumb and immature to be seen as a rabbi, as a teacher. Furthermore, Jewish custom had it that men were just not wise enough to be listened to authoritatively until they reached 30. And to add another cherry on top of this argument, early church fathers like Origen and Jerome even suggest that Jewish men were not even allowed to read the Song of Solomon the erotic poem of the Old Testament, until they were 30. The thought was that their minds wouldn't be clean enough until they were old and mature enough to read it. And so for these... uh, And furthermore, if if Jesus is going to be a rabbi with disciples, not only 12 disciples, but 70, hundreds, and a handful of women at various times, and depending on, on how you define his group, when he is resurrected, one of his appearances is to 500 at a time. So he had hundreds of followers... 12 really dedicated followers and 3 extremely dedicated followers and if you're going to have people like that hanging on your every word 
you've got to fall into the cultural category of being somebody who you can listen to like that. So Jesus would have to be in his 30s in order to to do that kind of ministry. What did Jesus' ministry look like? Well, he would have been uh, kind of a roving preacher, or an itinerant preacher might be the word for it. This means that he would often repeat themes and parables. You see this not only between books, where books will give teachings that are slightly different in different books, but sometimes in the same book you'll have teachings that are extremely similar, that are given at different locations and under different circumstances. Jesus taught a lot in parables, so we use storytelling in order to make, make important points. And he would not always explain the parables. Sometimes he would and sometimes he wouldn't. Jesus was not always direct. Sometimes he would give language in his teachings that would require you to think about it. To, to think about his teaching, to really ponder and, and, and chew on the teaching for a while. Jesus was not afraid to challenge power structures. So in his teachings, he would challenge governmental authority, but more often religious authorities. He would challenge power structures when he felt that they were wrong. But he would also support power structures when he felt that that, that the power structure was legitimate. So, for instance, uh, the the give unto Caesar what is Caesar's line is probably the best one. I was also trying to think of a good example of him supporting the Jewish religious power structures, but actually none comes to mind off the top of my head. Oh, well, I guess there's the one he says, uh, when the priests tell you to do something and they're being hypocritical, do what they say, but you know, don't, don't pay attention to their life, pay attention to the words, because they're the priests. You know, you've got to listen to them as priests. But don't do what they do, do what they say. I guess that, that, that'll work. That's my argument. So sometimes he challenged power structures when, the, when they needed to be challenged, and sometimes he upheld those power structures when the power structures were legitimate. Jesus also taught what I call the upside-down kingdom, So in multiple times and in multiple ways, he would emphasize the idea that the kingdom of God is one in which if you want to be the greatest, you need to be a servant. He emphasized the coming kingdom, and in Matthew, it was described as the kingdom of heaven. So thinking of heaven as like an imperial, but a good empire, like an imperial overlord, or in Luke, and I believe Mark, where it's described as the kingdom of God. So that would be a kingdom with a focus on your king, God as king. So one focuses on the kingdom, heaven, and one focuses on the king, which is God. And in, if you compare and contrast Mark and Luke, sometimes teachings will be word for word, except the one word will be different, will be kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. So there really are interchangeable terms. It's just one author emphasizes one aspect of the kingdom and the other author emphasizes a slightly different aspect of the coming kingdom. Jesus would sometimes highlight his unique significance. So he directly asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And then when they give the right answer, he says, for this answer has been given to you, Simon, son of Jonah, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, When he's speaking to the woman at the well, she says, when Messiah comes and he says, the one who is speaking to you right now, that's that guy. So sometimes he highlighted his uniqueness and sometimes he kept it hidden. Christ must have had an extraordinary amount of wisdom to know when to do which. Jesus would reach out to groups that were often abandoned by religious leaders, prostitutes, tax collectors, and ethnic minorities. Now, when regard to ethnic minorities, Jesus would sometimes be blunt that he was still sent primarily to the Jews. So like he tells the Syrophoenician woman, 
that uh, something about I don't remember the exact words. I haven't memorized the verse, but it's not good to to give the children's food to the dogs. And she says, "Well, even food that falls off the table, the dogs can eat," which sounds like a racist, racist exchange. But notice what happens in that story. The Syrophoenician woman doesn't appear to be offended, and Jesus heals her. Jesus does not refuse to heal the woman that he supposedly sees as ethnic trash, because he doesn't really see her as ethnic trash. The point he was trying to make was that the priority of his ministry at this point in time are Jewish people, because Jews, through all 12 disciples, and if I'm not mistaken, every other person who's called an apostle, all of them are Jewish. And so it's through that Jewish core that the church will come about. And it is therefore through that Jewish core, a Jewish Savior and his Jewish followers starting a Jewish church that then becomes the global church. That was Jesus' priority. In fact, no time during Jesus' ministry does he ever reject someone because of their ethnicity. Jesus was not only a roving preacher, he was a prophet. He prophesied his own death and resurrection on multiple occasions. He was able to tell Nathaniel what he was doing underneath uh, a was it it wasn't an oak tree was it it was an olive tree no. or fig tree fig tree yeah he was able to tell Nathan or Nathaniel what he was doing uh, under the fig tree he was able to tell the disciples that Lazarus was dead without having to be told Jesus prophesied about the destruction of the temple and he prophesied about events that are still in our future and Jesus was a miracle worker. And his miracles tended to come in three occasions. The most common miracle was as healer. So times when he was helping somebody else in their afflictions. The second most common miracle he would perform would be sign miracles, like changing the water into wine, which shows his power over not only the ceremony of the wedding, so his ceremonial power, but also his power over the elements of this world. And speaking of elements his calming of the storm and likewise his walking on water show that he has power over creation and the calming of the storm has extra significance that we don't necessarily see as modern American people Jews often saw the sea and water as chaos and so that's why in the Psalms occasionally you'll see mention of the Leviathan the great sea beast of Canaanite myth the sea is a, especially a roiling sea, a stormy sea is, is great chaos. And so Christ, by calming the storm on the sea, shows that he has power not only over, over this creation, but also over the chaos in creation. He is master over chaos. See, I think I mentioned to you that day I read Revelation that said there's no more sea. Mm-hmm. I had read That's that exactly before, why. Yeah. But I didn't make it significant until you know it said that the, the sea was chaos and there's no chaos in heaven. Praise God. <laughs> well, and furthermore, I actually take that to be a metaphor, a strictly metaphorical use of that term, because if I'm right about what new heaven and new earth is going to look like, and I might be wrong. Let's be clear here. <laughs> Revelation is not absolutely clear about especially the distant future which new heavens and new earth does seem to be distant future there does seem to be other things that need to happen before that point but if i'm right then the earth as we know it for the most part minus sinfulness and minus the brokenness of creation will be part of new heavens and new earth and so i don't think the pacific ocean is just going to disappear 
I think all the goodness of our oceans will, and our seas will be part of that new heavens and new earth. So by saying there's no more sea, I think it's that purely figurative use of the term to say there will be no more chaos, that there will be no more power of chaos, that the demons and society and other gods, if they exist, none of them have power anymore. All that power has been destroyed, and only the power of God and the power of love remain in new heavens and new earth. You know, the temple talks about there being a sea, a bronze. I had never thought of that, yeah. So it's like that is the how I interpreted that, that it, would be, it wouldn't be needed in heaven, you know, all that. Interesting. Yeah, doesn't the new heavens and new earth passage even say there's no more need of a temple because God will be our God and we will be his people and he will be in our midst? And so... Epiphany there. No, that's really good thoughts. So the types of miracles, one is heal as healer, two is sign miracles, and the third and least common of his miracles are what I call convenience miracles. So... Uh, the, the best example I can think of off, uh, uh, as I was putting this together would be the when Peter is talking with somebody, some bystander, and they say, does Jesus pay the temple tax? And he says, well, sure he does. And then Jesus is like, Peter, I'm not paying the temple tax. Does the son of the father need to pay? And Jesus is like, okay, but you've already said we pay the temple tax, so here's what you're going to do. Go, go catch a fish, and in the fish's mouth is going to be a coin, and go take that coin and pay the temple tax. That to me, feels more like a miracle of convenience than anything else. It's like, all right, get it over with. And so there are times where Jesus is healing, sometimes when he's performing sign miracles, and also miracles of convenience to make life easier for him and his and the people he loves. And often there would be overlap. So the calming of the storm is a miracle of convenience, but it's also a sign miracle. And then a lot of the healings, like the healing of the paralytic, was certainly a sign miracle. A sign, a sign of his power uh, over sickness and death. And while well, the, the raising of Lazarus would be a, a sign miracle of his power over death, and yet those were clearly primarily healing miracles. Moving on, based on the feast cycles of John, the book of John, we know his ministry lasted about three years. And by my reading, I think I see a fluctuating group of followers. Sometimes the people who are following him are more than at other times. And I think I get a sense that this is true even of the twelve early on. First of all, because the twelve don't come in as one group. They come in one bit by bit. So the fishermen come in early and then Matthew's added at some point and then uh, at some point Jesus then decides to pick twelve, including names we hadn't heard yet like Simon the Zealot or James the Lesser. And then you got the twelve. And at that point it seems like the twelve stay put. But even then, you've got people coming and going. Jesus even sends all of them out coming and going. You've got 70 that seem to be pretty pretty dedicated, 70, 72, somewhere around that much. But one of the things you've got to realize is all these people still have to have jobs, and they still need to take care of their families, and they've got duties. So many of Jesus' followers would be followers in the way that I'm a follower of the chiefs. Imagine if there was no TV or radio, so I would have to go do my job, but... Every time I get a chance, I'm going to try to go watch watch Chiefs game. And I'm not going to be able to make it to every game. But I'm going to try to find out, hey, did the Chiefs win yesterday? I'm going to try to follow them. And every chance I get, I'm going to go watch them play. And I think that's the same way. You would have followers of Jesus who would be kind of like fans of Jesus. They were learning from him. They were Every chance they got to listen to him, they would listen. They would ponder uh, his his teachings while they would go back out on the sea to fish or go plow a field. And then if they get a chance in a couple months, they'll, they'll go back and hear Jesus again. 
I think a lot of Jesus' followers that were that way. In fact, we know that some followers fell away. In the book of John, at a certain point, Jesus would ratchet up the difficulty of his teachings just to shed some numbers, to, I guess, to purify the quality of his followers, those that were that were maybe a little wishy-washy, to encourage them to move on to different pastures. For the rest of our time, let's talk about his Passion Week. Now, shortly before the Passion Week, he raises Lazarus from the dead. This is a miracle that's only mentioned in one gospel. I've already explained to you why I think that is. I think when Matthew and Mark and Luke are written, Lazarus and Mary and Martha are still around. And so the gospel writers aren't, aren't, aren't going to try to highlight them for targets. By the time John's written, I don't think they're still around anymore. And so John's free to be able to share this story. The raising of Lazarus is probably Jesus' most significant miracle until the resurrection. He did heal a child and the widow's son. He did. The, the difference, I think, with the raising of Lazarus is the amount of time between death mm-hmm. and resurrection. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, William Lane Craig likes to use the term revivification, the relifing mm-hmm. of Lazarus, to, em- to emphasize that Lazarus came back in his body. Jesus came back in his resurrection body. Yes. We will have resurrection bodies, and Lazarus will too, someday. Yes. But Lazarus' body was revivified. It was relifed. And in the good old King James English, when they rolled the stone away, he stinketh. Yes. So the, the emphasis on just the outstanding power of this miracle. And so, yes, he does raise two other people from death. Uh, this one seems to stand out a little higher. Coming right after the death of Lazarus, or the raising of Lazarus, Jesus approaches the city and he arrives on Palm Sunday. And to fulfill a verse in Zechariah, he comes riding on the colt of a donkey. And his followers lay palm branches as he approaches the city and comes into the city. That's why it's called Palm Sunday. And for four days, he has his most intense ministry of his entire three-year ministry. In fact, the book of John, though John's the one that gives us the three-year figure for his ministry, half, half of John takes place in the Passion Week. And so this is his, his most intense time of teaching. This is when he confronts the uh, priests and the scribes and the Sadducees. This is the time when he clears the temple. Now, John, the book of John, puts this event towards the beginning of his ministry. The options here are he cleared the temple twice, which I used to believe that, and I'm still open to that. I think it's more likely that John just had literary reasons to mix and match the events. Uh, I think it's much more likely that this is a part of the Passion Week story, that Jesus cleared the temple, and this is part of the reason why he was executed, that the the powers that be were already upset at him, and this was kind of a final straw, that he thinks he's going to come in here and disrupt our economy, of our temple. So the powers that be paid Judas 30 pieces of silver, also in fulfillment of prophecy, to betray Jesus. So before Judas has a chance to betray him, Jesus has a Last Supper, which is a Passover Seder. It is part of the Jewish tradition. It is a Passover Seder feast. And it is at that point Jesus kind of hints that the tides are changing. We're moving into a new... uh, I'm going to be executed. 
resurrection's coming, and a new covenant will be established, a covenant built upon my body and my blood. And you all will be part of it, even though none of them really knew what he was talking about at the time. They would find out. From the Last Supper, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and prays, and it's at Gethsemane where Judas is able to betray him. Then Jesus has trials before two high priests. First, he has a trial before the high priest emeritus, Annas. Apparently, from the book of John, the Annas, who was Caiaphas's father-in-law, had been high priest before. See, if you're high priest, you're not necessarily a high priest for life. There, there's kind of a rotating schedule. And I'm no expert exactly on how that rotation worked. But Annas had been high priest, and I think according to the book of Acts, he serves as high priest again at some point. We know at the beginning of the book of Luke that John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, serves as high priest at one point. Uh, but that only seems to be a one-year thing. Is a high priest the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies? Yes. Behind the curtain? Yeah, you have to be high priest in order to go into the holiest, the, the most holy place. Annas was the high priest emeritus. He was the once and future high priest. Caiaphas, as high priest that year, he then uh, hosts the second trial. Now, this tri- these tri- both trials, but the Caiaphas trial was really rushed. It seems to take place in the middle of the night. It is possible that uh, Jesus did have supporters in the Sanhedrin. We know of at least two, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Church tradition tells us that both of these men will go on to have a role in the church. We don't know that from Scripture, though. But it's reasonable to assume they both will work together to bring spices to prepare Jesus' body. They, they seem to be followers at this point. Uh, it seems like they were not alerted to this trial. And it's only those people that Caiaphas knows are going to support his position of condemnation. And so this rushed tr- these rushed trials happen in the middle of the night, and then the Sanhedrin takes Jesus before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. Judea is the Roman name for Judah, the southern kingdom. But it's not a kingdom anymore. It's a province of Rome. At one point, during Jesus' birth narrative, there is no Roman governor of Judea. Herod the Great is over that area. But the problem is Herod Archelaus did such a terrible job, Herod Archelaus, Herod's son, that at a certain point, the the Romans just come in and and kick him out and say, you are done. We're going to put our own guys here. And so a series of Roman governors would serve over Judea. Now the Herods would still have control over other areas surrounding Judea. So for instance, Herod Antipas, who we'll see in a second, is in control over Galilee. So Jesus has a series of trials before Pontius Pilate. At one point, Pontius Pilate passes him on to Herod Antipas, trying to let his rival take the blame for all this event. But somehow, the text is not entirely sure exactly what the dynamic was here, but somehow these two men decide with all this hullabaloo or whatever you want to, word you want to use, all this hubbub about what was going on with Christ, they actually became friends. With, with all this backroom dealing going on. Becoming friends over subterfuge is an interesting way to becoming friends, but they had been rivals, and they became friends that day. There's a prophecy in the Old Testament about that the 
as a sheep stands before its shearers, this is Isaiah 53, as a sheep stands before its shearers is silent, so will the, the suffering servant be silent. And that always bothered me because Jesus does speak. He doesn't, he says words when Pilate asks him questions, when Caiaphas asks him questions, but it's, it's interesting to note Jesus is never begging. He's never saying, oh, please don't kill me. He just, when he's asked a direct question, he answers it, except from Herod. He doesn't say a word to Herod Antipas. And you can make of that whatever you want to make of it. I take of it as Jesus has no respect for this man or his family or his family's power. For whatever reason, he, he does answer some direct questions from Caiaphas and Annas and Pilate, but not from Herod Antipas. Then Jesus is sent to be crucified. Now this is where we as Christians need to be honest. The time of day when this happens is actually not clear. Some Gospels put it earlier in the morning, some put it more towards midday. The best synthesis of the text seems to indicate that the execution happened from mid-morning to early afternoon. Now, when Romans would execute their prisoners, they would put them on the cross and they would hang them there for days, however long it takes. I've described it to you, I don't have need to go into great detail, but the nail goes through the ankles, another nail goes through this Kind of, if you grab your, your wrist right here and feel there's a little indention right there, right through that indention in your wrist, and you would vacillate between hanging from your wrist and you have to take short breaths to finally pushing up on, you, on the nail that's going through your ankles so you can take better breaths, but you can't do that for very long, so you spend the rest of your life just vacillating between intense pain and as, you, as your lungs slowly start to fill up with fluid and you basically die from not being able to breathe. It's a terrible way to die. So Jesus decides to take control over it and gives up his own spirit whenever he wants. And since these executions were happening during Passover week, during a very politically and religiously fraught time, the Romans decided we need to hurry up, hurry this up along. So they go and they break the legs of the two criminals that are being executed with Christ. Oh, by the way, before I get to that, I also want to point out this part of the biography because I find this fascinating. In Mark, I think it's Mark, Jesus is ridiculed by both prisoners. So both of the people he's being executed with join in making fun of him. In Luke, now the way I take this is at a certain point, one of the prisoners changes his mind, that he sees something. Because in Luke, one of the prisoners makes fun of Jesus and the other says... Knock it off. We've earned this. This guy doesn't seem to have earned any of this. And he says, Jesus, when you're in your uh, kingdom, will you remember me? And Jesus says, today you'll see me in paradise. So it's a great it's a great story. It's a great part of the story. So later, unfortunately, that fella does get to see Jesus in paradise that day because the soldiers come and break his legs. So he no longer is going to be able to push up off of his ankles. He's going to just take short breaths until he dies, which probably 10, 20 minutes, maybe an hour tops. They, they die pretty quickly once the legs are, are broken. And when they come to Jesus, they find out that they don't need to break his legs. He's already dead. Because he Jesus picked his own time. That even in his death, he showed that he had control over the situation. One thing I find really interesting is the... Uh it says some graves open and saints raised. Yeah, oh yeah, the, 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 the passage from Matthew, the, the quote-unquote zombie passage. A lot of people Im- imagine that this was like David and Solomon and 
No, I think it's more likely that they were victims of persecution, recent persecution. So maybe people who had been followers of Jesus who might have, or maybe not even followers of Jesus, just particularly righteous people who had been victims of Roman persecution recently. I think these are revivifications, like Lazarus. They were buried in Jerusalem. Yeah, I would say so. Maybe even on the same mount, because Mm -hmm. Golgotha was the... uh, If if I'm reading the text correctly, Jesus is executed on top of Golgotha, and he's buried around back Mm -hmm. of the same hill. That seems to be the way I read it. Is that how you read it? Mm -hmm. And so it's possible that, that there were people in that same... It might have been people... I just wonder, who was it? <laughs> well, and here's the other option. Remember, this is a secular class, so I have to be honest here. Matthew might have just made it up. Do I believe that? No, I don't. But that's that's certainly an option. And most secular scholars are going to say that that passage is just fantasy, no matter where a scholar fits on. You'll be there's a surprisingly amount, it's a surprisingly high amount of secular scholars who are open to the idea of a, a resurrection. Just, there's just so much evidence. There's, it's unlikely. Now, if you really push, you know, you made a truth or dare, you have to tell us the truth. You think that resurrection actually happened? The secular scholars are going to be like, "Nah, I just can't. I can't believe that that really happened." But they would also admit the birth of the church was really quick. It's not like building religions based on mythologies of like what was supposed to have happened to Apollo and Zeus in the distant unknowable past, once upon a time. No, an entire church was built on stuff that happened a few months ago. And so, that's pretty extraordinary. There's a lot of extraordinary factors that went into the sudden and explosive growth of the early church. And if you allow for a resurrection, then that, a lot of stuff lines up. Okay, so <laughs> let's, we got a, just a couple minutes, let's, let's, let's uh, land this plane. So Jesus dies, and he's buried in Joseph of Arimathea's expensive tomb. It's, the text says that nobody had been laid there before. Joseph of Arimathea apparently had a somebody carve out a tomb out of this rock. Now, sometimes you'll see a Jesus movie, and the tomb will be like as big as this room. No, it would have been a notch in the, in the wall, just big enough to put a body and roll a stone. But that's where... Uh, that's where Jesus was buried. This is important because Mary and the other, some other women were able to see where the burial was. And it's also important because it indicates that Jesus wasn't thrown in a common criminal grave where, where just a bunch of people thrown into dirt thrown over the top. Because if that was the case, how would you ever prove the resurrection? You just It's just somebody who looks like Jesus. What are we going to do? Go dig up everybody in the common grave? But since Jesus burial place was known to not only his friends but also his enemies that's significant mary comes on sunday morning and other women apparently are with with her and they're going to complete the preparation of the body and they're wondering who's going to roll the stone away but the stone's already moved and jesus appears to mary and then certain women and then after that he appears to his disciples on multiple occasions one time Thomas is with is not with them, and then later Thomas is with them, which gives Thomas the opportunity to be the very first person to announce that Jesus is God. When Jesus says, "See the," because doubting Thomas, Thomas said, "I won't believe unless I see the, the the nails in his hands and the spear in his side." And Jesus said, "Hey, check it out." And 
Thomas, by the way, in the book of John, he doesn't actually have to put his finger in the side. Mm-hmm. He just sees the evidence and he says, my Lord and my God. I think he kind of got, gets a bad rap because they all doubted. Yeah, his doubt was just clearer. And But like I said, he also was the first one to announce. Mm-hmm. Jesus, when Peter gets a lot of credit for being the one that says, you are the Messiah, the, yes. the, the you are the Christ, the Son of God. That's important, but that's half of Jesus' identity. When Thomas says, my Lord and my God, that's, that's a yeah. step that the others had not taken yet. And so it's an important. So... Jesus then, uh, he makes several appearances. He appears in Jerusalem. He appears on the roadside, specifically to Emmaus. He appears in Galilee. He catches, uh, or he's there uh, during the catch of 153 fish. One of these days, I want to figure out why that number is so significant, because it's in John, exactly 153 fish. And then finally, uh, he appears back at Jerusalem during the ascension at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus ascends into heaven. This part of his story has always troubled me so much because I don't know if the implication here is that the writer of Luke thinks that heaven really is up in the stratosphere somewhere, whether it's a symbolic event. And if it is a symbolic event, did Jesus really ascend so that the people would think he's going up into the third heaven? Or was the ascension more like a shifting I'm in sci-fi nerd mode here but 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 like well because we know when Stephen gets stoned in the book of Acts Stephen is able to look up and somewhere right up here he sees heavens opened and the son of man standing beside the throne of the father and is the ascension something similar where Jesus ascended and then just whoop he goes into that other dimension and he goes behind the veil that separates heaven from earth the veil that will be removed one day when new heavens and new earth becomes a reality. I think that's got to be the way I take it. But none of that I just discussed is in the text. All it says is that he ascended into heaven. And we've just got to imagine what exactly that means. And finally, we have to discuss his return. Because the first generation of his followers strongly believed that he would return in their generation. But it's also important, and I think eventually they started remembering that he said this, Not even he knew when the end would come. And his return is part of the end of days. And so if he doesn't know when the end comes, then they don't either. And I think they started to realize that. And that is the beginning of the culture of trying to translate the... Translate the wrong word. Of trying to transcribe the events and teachings of Christ into the form we have it today. Jesus still will return. He said he would. Paul said he would. Peter said he would. Revelation says he would. And in Revelation, his return seems to be a victorious and perhaps even violent return. He seems to come back to defeat evil, set up a thousand-year kingdom, whatever that means. I tend to lean towards a thousand-year kingdom. Just If the figurative language is not apparent, then I just go with the, the language as it is. So he'll set up a thousand-year kingdom. And then, finally, he is part of the eternal Godhead who is worshipped as the centerpiece and the king of new heavens and new earth. And so this, and obviously all that stuff about his return, that's from a Christian perspective. There is no secular perspective on his return. Except the secular perspective would be Christians believe this stuff. They couldn't have an opinion on it because that would... 
Well, they can have an opinion, but the opinion is probably going to be more like, I don't necessarily... If you're a secular thinker, you're not going to believe that Christ is coming back. He's been dead for 2,000 years. So, the person we discuss tonight is the most significant person who's ever lived in the history of the world. That's really important because he won no battles. He fought no... Or, let me put it this way. He fought no battles. He won no victories. He wrote no books. He left no descendants. He wore no crown. And yet, he's the most significant person that has ever lived on this earth. And that's because I believe, as a Christian, that he is God the Son. And his impact on history cannot be measured against anybody else's impact. It's him. We, our societies are based on it, on every continent. Uh, he is worshipped. Uh, we even base our calendar loosely off of his life. We hope you have enjoyed this production of The Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. Any factual errors made in the preparation or recording of this podcast are unintentional, and your feedback is welcome. You may contact me at thewillwrights at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-W-I-L-L-R-E-I-T-Z at gmail.com. Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you will be back to download more. And thank you.